0: Let's open our Bibles to the revelation of Jesus Christ to chapter three, where we're gonna look at verses one through six this morning and talk about the church at Sardis. Open your Bible, navigate on your device, whip out your notepad, however you wanna encounter God's word this morning in a way that's meaningful. So that's our text. The topic, Jesus shocks the saints in Sardis by pronouncing them dead and then telling them what to do about it. The title of our message, Things to Do in Sardis When You're Dead. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning. We love gathering together in your name. You promise a special blessing for reading this book, which we've done uh, already this morning a little bit and are going to do more now. We appreciate the fellowship of the saints and our fellowship with you pray that a lot of good spiritual work would take place here today, Lord, through the music, through the message, and just through our contacts with one another as men and women in Christ. Lord, for those who've come here hurting this morning in special ways, uh, maybe different griefs and uh, hopelessness, Lord, all those kinds of things that, that attack us, uh, I pray that they would be encouraged in their most holy faith. and Lord, you would reveal yourself to them as the one who loves them and and has an abundant life for them. Give them perspective and, uh, Lord, uh, may their eyes be set upon you. Now, as we look at your word, Lord, I pray that you would uh, teach it to us. We would understand why and who it was written to originally, but also how it ministers to us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. What if you opened up the morning paper and read your own obituary? You'd probably do it online nowadays, but you get the idea. You might have to paraphrase Mark Twain who said, reports of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. It wasn't exactly fake news at the time, but April 16, 2003 was a bad day for CNN. A technical glitch made some obituaries they prepared for several famous but not yet dead persons accessible to the general public. They announced the deaths of all these people Dick Cheney, Ronald Reagan, Bob Hope, Fidel Castro, Pope John Paul II, Nelson Mandela, and Gerald Ford. I don't know if they issued an apology or what, but bad day. Speaking of Gerald Ford, some of you might remember the Saturday Night Live skit uh, featuring the death of Gerald Ford, because these uh, news outlets, they they have obituaries ahead of time or eulogies ahead of time because they don't want to be caught short by the other news company. And so they had Tom Brokaw recording different death notifications, uh, obituaries of uh, Gerald Ford. And they got more and more fantastic, each one, until finally they said, Gerald Ford killed by wolves. And uh, he said... What are the odds of Gerald Ford being eaten by wolves? And they say, well, you don't want ABC to stump us on this one, you know, and stuff. So it's pretty funny skit. Tony Stark produced not one but two obituaries, video obituaries, in Avengers Endgame. I've thought about filming something for my memorial. So far, I'm the only person in my family who doesn't think it's creepy. But wouldn't that be great? Just you're sitting there and all of a sudden, instead of the obligatory video of, you know, all the picture oh how cute that's gene as a baby and you know that's gene with a mullet and you know (laughs) instead i just come out and say hey how you guys doing i beat you you know or something i don't know you know i I think it has possibilities uh you know it can make a big production out of it or maybe you could just play tony stark's memorial (laughs) video so now jesus letter to the church in sardis reads like a premature obituary As their pastor read aloud the scroll of the revelation to the church, they heard Jesus say to them, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. The Lord's comments to Sardis didn't get much better, but if he did, there was a chance that the Lord would retract this obituary. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, check to see if you are dead. And number two, continue to show signs of life. Let's check to see if we're dead. You might recognize this quote. Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Now, mostly dead is slightly alive. All dead, well, with all dead, there's only usually one thing that you can do, go through his clothes and look for loose change. <laughs> Who said that? Come on, you can do. Miracle Max from The Princess Bride, which I I feel obligated to mention that I don't particularly care for. But anyway, everybody loves that movie. I don't get it, you know. Jesus told the church in Sardis they were dead. It was, however, a dead that they could recover from. Thus, Jesus also said to them in verse 2, they were ready to die. Then there were also a few in Sardis with life. Look at verse 4. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus contrasted the mostly dead majority with a remnant who were worthy. The one difference between the two groups was that the worthies had not defiled their garments. We start with the mostly dead, defiled majority. In verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Angel is a word that means messenger. The pastor uh, pastor of the church was the most likely one to read the message to the congregation aloud. The human author of the revelation, the apostle John, recorded a vision of the risen Lord in chapter one. Each description from chapter one is then applied to one of the seven churches. The description chosen is perfect to minister to the church in its particular circumstances. To Sardis, Jesus said that he was he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. A Jew or anyone familiar with the Old Testament would understand that it refers us back to chapter 4 of the book of Zechariah. I remind you, because I remind myself, that so much of our understanding of the revelation depends on a good working knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. We have a tendency to look at this seven spirits of God and start Talking about the you know the number seven and all of these different numerical things, or we try and find this or that analogy, and in reality, it's pointing us back to a chapter in Zechariah chapter four. For example, in verse six of that chapter, uh, it says, "For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord." which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And so Zechariah is talking about seven things as well, seven eyes. Later in the Revelation, we're going to be told the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And so all these passages connect. Revelation 3, Revelation 5, Zechariah 4, talking about seven eyes or the seven spirits of God going out into all the earth. Now, what does it all mean for Sardis? Well, Zechariah wrote about completing the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem after the Jews returned from their captivity in Babylon. He assured the returnees that they could complete the work, but it must not be by their might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God's people would complete God's work if they depended upon God's spirit. And so that is the message of Zechariah 4, and that's where Revelation is pointing the saints to look. Like all churches, the church in Sardis was a temple of God on the earth. When the church meets, we are considered a temple of the Lord on the earth. Uh, It's kind of like, I should think this through before I say it, but it popped into my mind. But if you watch Top Chef or some of those chefs, they have pop-up restaurants, right? All of a sudden, it's like, oh, we're opening a restaurant here. It's not permanent, but we're here. Whenever we get together as the church, we are a pop-up temple of the Lord. Now, individually, our bodies are the temple of the Lord. That's, I think, in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, you know, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. But First Corinthians 3 says we also corporately are his temple. So Sardis was the temple of God on earth, but it had become more like a mausoleum. They were dead. God's people could complete God's work that had started in Sardis if they returned to depending upon God the Holy Spirit. And so that's the message. Sardis would need to rediscover the dynamic empowering of God the Holy Spirit in order to build his spiritual temple on the earth. Jesus also mentioned the seven stars. These were said to be the angels, the ministers, the pastors of the seven churches. Why mention them? Well, in this same theme, it's on the pastor-teacher to build upon the foundation of the church. The first century apostles and prophets came through and they established churches on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And then they raised up men, pastor teachers, evangelists, who are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Doesn't make the pastor more important, it just that's his function. And, and so He's telling the Sardians. I wonder if, would that, they're not Sardines, I'm sure, so they'd probably be Sardisians, but uh, he's telling them that they need to build with the Holy Spirit on the foundation and that especially their teaching and what is presented to them as the Word of God needs to be anointed and blessed by the Spirit. The quickest way for a church to quit depending upon the Holy Spirit is for the pulpit to introduce thinking from the world. It's likely that something like that happened in Sardis. He says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. You wouldn't know it to look at them that they were dead. Some dead people just don't look dead. I am infamous at Lamore Police Department for having almost introduced myself to a dead man. I was on a death call. I should have realized somebody here must be dead. Uh, and." Uh, a whole long story, but this guy looks really alive sitting in his lounge chair. He died watching television as we all dream of doing. Uh, And uh, he died in just the most peaceful position with his clothes on and and just in his lounge chair with his eyes open. I should have known when he wasn't moving or blinking or breathing that there was a problem, but uh, I came milliseconds away from introducing myself, but I I caught myself. Actually, the Lord stopped me. was getting ready to shake his hand, and the Lord said, Gene, this is a dead man. And I said, okay. (laughs) Sardis had works, but their works were neither endorsed nor energized by God the Holy Spirit. Similar to the churches in the region of Galatia, Sardis had begun in the Spirit, but they were trying to continue in their own natural human energy. And so that all ties into Zechariah 4 and this whole imagery. Now, this group of walking dead saints was distinguished by defiled garments. Immediately, we tend to think defiled indicates the kind of misbehaviors we saw in Thyatira, such as eating meat sacrificed to idols and committing sexual and spiritual adultery. If they were committing sexual and spiritual adultery, would they have a good name? Of course not their defilement must be something else than these outward uh, recognizable sins. Could it be that trying to do the works of God in your own energy rather than by the empowering of the indwelling spirit is a defilement? Well, it makes sense in the context. Independence from God is a way worse thing than we think. And that's essentially when we try to do the work of God in the energy of our own flesh with our own talents and ability, We are no longer depending upon God. We are depending upon ourselves. And that is, uh, God doesn't want to share his glory with us. He wants to be glorified through us. And we want him to be glorified through us. Uh, But oftentimes we look at people and because they're famous or talented in a certain area, we raise them up and we walk down this path. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. I've heard some strange eulogies over the years, and let me warn you right now: don't let anybody speak at your memorial who isn't cleared, you know, and and not crazy. Uh, the open mic, not a good idea. You know, and even then, sometimes the family. I was. I can't reveal this because you'll know which funeral it was, but the things he said about his mother oh my goodness I just you know who are you talking about Uh, anyway it was strange so so Jesus is the words aren't getting uh, your works are just not perfect before me you know how everybody lies in eulogies right to try to make somebody sound better than they are that's why I want to do my own but anyway we don't know precisely how the church in Sardis was founded But we know that like all the first century churches, it was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. They had all begun in the spirit. There was time, therefore, to strengthen what remained of that foundation and cornerstone. If they would realize that they were dead spiritually to the work of the Holy Spirit, there was still the foundation, which was good. Thus, they could be described as dead, but also as ready to die. They might yet perfect the works God intended for them. This next verse, verse three, seems to confirm the interpretation we're suggesting. It says, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. How had they received and heard? By the power of God, the Holy Spirit, they were to remember how the church was founded. Now, again, we don't know how the church at Sardis was founded, but in the book of Acts, you can read stories of how some of the other churches were founded. The narratives are amazing, recounting the supernatural leading of men like the apostle Paul to exactly one person in the precise location God intended They were all begun in the spirit, these churches. No one sat down and strategized. In Antioch, which was a vibrant, growing church, Paul didn't get Barnabas and these other guys together and say, let's spread out a map of the Roman world and decide where we want to go with the gospel. They were having a prayer meeting, praying for one another when the Holy Spirit said, probably through a word of prophecy, separate apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them to. What are, well, what's that, Lord? We better fast and pray some more so we know it's really you. And they did, and then they sent them out. See you guys later. Have fun. Travel around and preach the gospel. Uh, and it's amazing the stories that come out of that. Church planting in those days was entirely supernatural. Church planting is a big hot button topic today. Strategies for church planting abound. One of them that I have trouble with is setting a financial goal as the indicator of when to plant the church. You may not have encountered this, but it's common today for a website to go up for ABC Church that they want to plant, uh, usually in San Diego County, uh, where you know you have to fight the weather and you know everything is really tough down there. Uh, but uh, and and if, you know, some in Orange County, which you know I guess is even worse because you're. So much closer to the ocean, but anyway, uh, and so they website goes up, and they they'll say that they're ready to start as soon as they get to their goal of a quarter of a million dollars, because then they can start to hire staff and do the things that are necessary, I guess, for the modern church. I'm sorry, I just when when the Antioch Church sent these guys out, they didn't they didn't start a website or a GoFundMe campaign and say, hey, as soon as we have enough traveling money. Paul and Barnabas are going to be able to leave and preach the gospel. Paul just left. He said, oh, I'll find work along the way, or I'll starve, I guess. I mean, these guys were about the gospel. And so, um, Sardis, they needed to recount their miraculous beginning and get back to trusting in the Lord. The mostly dead saints in Sardis should do three things hold fast to the original foundation. Repent of their building on it in their own energy with wood, hay, and stubble. And watch, meaning beyond guard, lest they continue to adopt methods of the world. How do we drift into depending on our own efforts and energy? Well, one thing I'd say is that the Lord's wisdom often presents itself as absolute foolishness. You can't get hardly a few pages into the Bible before you start to see that the Lord has his people do things that, from the world's perspective seem foolish Noah you're going to build a humongous boat the ark it, have you ever been to the ark thing in Kentucky how many of you have been seen the, the you know that thing is huge I mean it's you know wow it's amazing even if you think it's big it's bigger than you think it is and so God says, Here's what's going to happen. We're going to build this ark, and animals two by two are going to come, and then it's going to rain. Come again. Uh, you know, uh, people are still making fun of the ark, aren't they? After all these centuries. It's it's a joke to, to non believers and uh, atheists and agnostics. All the stories in the Bible are fantastic like that. Now, we read them from our perspective and think, Wow! Oh, Lord, you're so fantastic. But before you're a Christian and non-Christians think, you're an idiot. Our decision to come to Hanford in 1985, absolute foolishness. No, I know it was because everybody said it was. Everybody. And, and uh, there are times, well, never mind. But anyway, no, it was it was the Lord. Uh, and there, there need to be times in your life when you do something for the Lord that's just that even Christians are going to say have a hard time with because it seems foolish. Not for foolishness' sake. I mean, there there are people that are way out on a you know on a spectrum here and just do all kinds of crazy things. There was a lady in town uh, in 1985 who was writing checks to churches, uh, and a lot of those checks would bounce. And when you call her, she said, "Well, that's my faith account. God tells me to write the checks, and I trust Him to put the money in there, and sometimes He doesn't." And I, I, it, we didn't get caught in that, but a friend of mine did. And, and I, I said, well, ask, ask her if her name is Mueller. She somehow, you know, uh, related to George Mueller or what kind of a weird, funky thing is that? So, but, uh, so we don't, we're not talking about that kind of foolishness. We're talking about something that just doesn't, just doesn't make sense from a worldly business engineering perspective. And, 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 you know, sometimes, you know, the Lord is leading. When we reject God's wisdom because it seems foolish, it is the beginning of an illness that leads to being mostly dead and then all the way dead. Dead as in forfeiting salvation? No, no, of course not. Listen to what Jesus said, keeping in mind the context in which this is all set. He said, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Several uh, passages describe uh, the coming as a thief in the night, as the day of the Lord. It catches people unaware, but it doesn't mean that here. These are believers and as such, they're not subject to the wrath of God. It in no way fits for this to be the same thief in the night kind of imagery. So we ask ourselves, is this the first time that the Lord said he might take something from one of the churches? Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There are, by the way, a lot of similarities between the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Sardinians. (laughs) I don't know how to... Sardisians? Sardisians? What would you say? People from Sardis. Uh, He didn't call himself a thief in Ephesus, but he was going to act like one in Ephesus. In Ephesus, Jesus was coming quickly to remove their lampstand. In Sardis, Jesus was coming as a thief and it makes sense that he was coming to remove their lampstand. Now, why? Lampstand, we're told in chapter 1, symbolizes the local church and its testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is supposed to be a light to the world, uh, you know, shining brightly in a dark place that Jesus has died and rose from the dead. Interesting thing about these lampstands, they were powered by oil, right? Right? And the oil is representative in Scripture of the Holy Spirit. And so if your lampstand went out, it meant that you didn't keep the supply of oil up. And you might as well take that lampstand away from that church and give it to another church that is filled with the Spirit. And so that's kind of the impression I'm getting here. And so Jesus didn't tell Ephesus he was a thief. He used a different analogy. But here he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your lampstand. Alan Redpath was the first person I ever heard say, if the Holy Spirit was removed from many churches, 95% of their work would continue. I would hope that if the Holy Spirit were theoretically removed from our church, all of the work would stop uh, because it's all him. In Sardis, you might say they were using elbow grease instead of the superabundant anointing oil of God the Holy Spirit. Now, as we've seen, these seven letters are for all churches throughout all the church age. Any church could substitute its name in place of these seven. So let's do that. And to the angel of the church of of Calvary Hanford write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. This is uh, crazy, right? Imagine actually hearing that from the Lord. Now, I don't think that our church is mostly dead or dead at all. I love our church. I see it to be vibrant with spiritual life. Nevertheless, it is true that no church and no Christian can be perfect. We all individually and corporately have areas where we are continuing in our own energy rather than by God's spirit. We can't uh, assume that it would never happen or that it's not happening, not, uh, just because we're not perfect. So I'm guessing that there's, there's areas in my life and there's areas in the life of our church that are not really being empowered by the spirit. They are in the energy of our own flesh and talent and ability. And we, it's up to us to discover those with the Lord because we don't wanna have any of those kinds of works. Uh, we only want the true works that are gonna bring true glory to God. As children growing up, we learn greater and greater independence from our parents. That's the goal, to create independent adults to go out into the world. There's a sense in which as we grow spiritually, we must learn greater and greater dependence upon our Father. It's exactly the opposite. Sometimes I think we think that when we're growing in the Lord, it's like, well, you know, Lord, I'm ready to get out of the nest now. You can let me go. I can handle things on my own, the way that we do with children. But in a sense, we should be regressing and going, you should be like those weird sci-fi things where you go backwards till you're a baby in total dependence upon God for all of your needs. There's something great about being a kid, isn't there? I mean, we're taking it away from kids today. Kids at a very young age are, you know, in mental problems and, and their, their lives are messed up and they, you know, they're, they're just not doing well. But it was fun when I grew up being a kid. You know, because I didn't, I, all I knew was that there would be dinner uh, and, and television and stuff like that, you know? And, and I, I didn't know what my dad was going through or what my mom was going through. I had absolute dependence on my parents. I didn't come home with lizards that I'd killed with slingshots I said, well, some food for tonight, you know? I mean, I know there are people who do that, but you, you get the idea. You're just in total dependence on your parents. And this is, the, you know, who's, who's your father? God is your heavenly father, and we need to be in total dependence upon him. So give up your independence. God doesn't need you. Some of us are really talented. I, I'm not. I haven't found my talent yet. Uh, this something I can do, but I, I, have no, I have absolutely no talents. I can't fix anything. I can't make anything. All the jobs I had before I was in the ministry are fake jobs. <laughs> that anybody could do. <laughs> So uh, anyway, we want to continue to show signs of life. Before the COVID apocalypse closed Disneyland, it was our happy place. In that vast sea of line waiting, turkey leg eating humanity, one group of people always stood out. They were Buddhist monks and I knew they were because they wore distinctive saffron colored robes. (laughs) The inhabitants of the supernatural realm all around us know that you are a Christian because you have a distinctive white robe. Here are two passages that talk about your salvation as if it were a robe given to you by God. The first is Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Then in Revelation 19.7 and 8, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Somebody just texted me that I can make coffee. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's my one talent. This is why I need to do my own memorial. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, why do you need this robe? Well, in your natural state, the Bible says that you are wearing what is called filthy rags. And so imagine, it doesn't matter what we have on, spiritually speaking, the Bible says from heaven's perspective, supernatural beings look at us and they see us wearing filthy garments. We all are like an unclean thing, Isaiah 64, and all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. There's a scene in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the Kevin Costner version involving filthy rags, A master of disguise, Robin Hood robed himself with the torn, tattered outer garment of a beggar in order to avoid being detected while visiting Maid Marian in the church. To make it more realistic, as he's walking into town, he picks up some dung, animal dung, off the ground and he rubs it all over himself so that he smells like that. That's what it means to have filthy garments. Like it or not, this is how every human being is robed. None of us are righteous. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. And that's what we looked like to God and the angels and the creatures in the supernatural realm. You receive your spiritual white robe the moment you are saved. It is given to you as an exchange for the filthy garments of your natural birth. Jesus takes literally, or spiritually speaking, Jesus takes upon himself your filth, and he gives you his righteousness. That's what happens at the cross. Now, like any white garment, it's going to pick up stains as we walk in a world whose God is the devil. Not to worry, because the precious blood of Jesus bleaches it white as we remain in fellowship with him. Then we read in verse 4, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. A bride just before she makes her appearance is a buzz of activity. She's got bridesmaids and mothers fixing her train, adjusting her veil, getting her bouquet in order, checking her for stains and lint, making sure that she has something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. It's incredible. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. He likewise sees to it that we are ready to make our appearance with him. We're told in the book of Ephesians that he might sanctify and cleanse his bride with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. The emphasis is on what the Lord is doing for us, not on what we must do for him. Obviously there's a cooperation, obviously there's a yielding to the spirit, those kinds of things, but uh, it's Jesus isn't just sitting around waiting for us to become holy. He's the one that is making us holy. C.S. Lewis wrote, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. What a great perspective. Something like that, a sentence like that, if you're ever going to do a Bible study or talk about the Bible, it ought to be written in your notes, not to quote to others, but to quote to yourself. Is what I'm going to say about God, about Jesus, it, it, does it put the emphasis on me and what I must do in order to prove myself or to approve myself? Or is the emphasis on Him and His grace and His work in my life? And it, that's what it needs to be. Some in Sardis were said to be worthy. It's a strong word, but in the Strong's Concordance, one possible translation of worthy is do a reward. And so he's saying, hey, there's some among you, they're due a reward. Why? Because they're doing the work of God in the energy of the Spirit, not in their own energy. And that's really interesting because God says, I'm going to reward you for things that you didn't even really do yourself. I did them through you. How's that? Not amazing. And so there were worthies. They were due a reward. In a couple of other places in the Bible, rewards that we receive are likened to adorning our white robes. At the end of that Isaiah passage about robes, we read, the bride adorns herself with jewels. And later on in the Revelation, we're told that believers adorn their white robes with rewards given them for their works. This minority in Sardis were going to be due a reward at the reward seat of Jesus, and those rewards will adorn their robes for eternity. Verse five, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, before we talk about the difficulties in this passage, I may be way out on a limb here, but I wonder if this isn't a sort of altar call that Jesus put in this letter. Think about it. This letter was going to be read aloud in a public gathering of the church. Nonbelievers are in almost every gathering, and certainly that would have been true in Sardis, Add to that that the saints in Sardis knew that a special event was taking place. A scroll that John the Apostle wrote while under the inspiration of God as Holy Scripture with a personal letter to their church was going to be read. Now, that'll get you out of bed, right? I mean, there's a lot of things you think, well, you know, I got to stay home and prepare for this or I can go to church next week and nothing ever happens at church. If this was happening, you know, if, if I put out a, an email and said, hey, guys, we got we, ha- we have a new Bible book. Uh, it's, you know, a, a new inspired piece of scripture that was just found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there's a letter to Calvary Hanford in there. Man, we wouldn't wait for the podcast. We'd be there. And so there's a crowd there. And, and you know, Jesus, I think, is acting like an evangelist. Listen to this point by point. Maybe I'm reading more into it, but I, I like this. He first of all says, he who overcomes. Now we've seen in previous studies that an overcomer is synonymous with being born again. He, who is he that overcomes? He who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And so Jesus starts by saying what? You need a new birth. To be an overcomer, you need to be born again. And he says, you shall be clothed in white garments. When you believe and are born again, the white garment is given to you by grace as a gift. You're thereby fit for heaven. Then he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. If you are born again, your name is gonna be in that book. You'll stand before Jesus at his reward seat, not with the wicked at the great white throne judgment. This speaks really of our sanctification through life as Jesus will work with us through life, bringing us to that point and accepting us into heaven. And then he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That means you'll make it to heaven into eternal life with joy and rejoicing. If this wasn't an altar call, it sure makes a good one, or at least points of a good one. Let's get uh, get into being blotted out of this book. Language scholars say that the words mean that names can and will be blotted out. Any explanation we give must account for the actual removal of some names. And so this isn't, some commentators to get around this say that it's a hypothetical, what if your name could be blurted out? But the language guys that I trust, I mean, really not guys that say they know Greek, but guys that know the Greek, they say, no, this is a possibility. It, th- these names can and they will be blotted out. Here's a verse I think that will help us understand this. It's a verse we use a lot here because it shows the, the, the intent of the Lord. It's from 1 Timothy 4.10. It's the part that says, We trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Jesus is the Savior of all men. That means that his death on the cross was and is sufficient to save anyone. It is not just a special group of people here or there, but that he died on the cross making salvation possible for the human race. Thus, if you want to look at the book of life, you can say that it is the book that has the names of every conceived human being in it from before the foundation of the earth. But then that verse says, especially of those who believe, and that means that Jesus' death on the cross that is sufficient for everyone is only effective once you believe in him. Should you die without believing in Jesus, having rejected his salvation, your name will be removed from the book of life. It will be blotted out, as it were. It will therefore not be there when you stand before the Lord to be cast alive into conscious eternal torment. We have membership lists. Some of you might be members of something. If you die, they take your name off the list. They don't want to spend the stamp to send you a newsletter anymore. And so you're, you're, so we're familiar. This isn't a big you know, problem. It's just that we need to recognize that Whoever you are, your name is in that book until you die. And if you haven't received Christ as your Savior, then it's removed. And there's coming a chapter, chapter 20, when you're going to see how important it is that your name is in that book. And so Jesus ends by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These words are part of a template for each letter. Whatever church you attend, in whatever time period, the Lord is writing to you, and he's writing to us. Did Alfred Nobel decide to start giving his famous prizes after reading his own obituary in a French newspaper? It may be an exaggeration, but some historians say it is likely. As the story goes, Ludwig Nobel died. Several papers published obituaries naming his considerably more famous brother Alfred. Alfred Nobel, I didn't know this, you probably did, he was the inventor of dynamite. The obituaries were cruel with the headline, The Merchant of Death is Dead. And so he gets up one morning, opens up a French newspaper, may we, probably. I took French in high school. What a waste. What? Who? You know. And then I had a dumbed-down uh, French class in, at the UC, UC Riverside. I learned how to read in French because they, they threw in the towel and said nobody's learning languages anymore; they're all too stupid. And so maybe we can get them to read a little bit, you know. So but I can't even read in French. I have trouble with English. But anyway, this was the headline in the French paper. The Mer- so you're 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 Alfred Nobel. You're reading the paper, uh, and you know some of you read the obituaries. You want to see who's dead. Uh, And he's reading his own obituary. It should have been about his brother, but it's him, and they call him the merchant of death. Alfred took stock of his life and decided he'd rather be remembered for something good. When he did die, the bulk of his estate went to setting up the prizes that still bear his name. Reading his own premature obituary changed his life. Reading our own premature obituary ought to change us. And so today, as we have our time of reflection, ask the Lord, where am I dead and ready to die?